Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Palace Way podcast. I'm Alex, as always. And of course, if you were tuning in to the last episode or been paying attention to our socials, you'll know we have some very exciting news. Uh, I'm pleased to welcome Liam back to the pod, but this time not as a guest, but as a co-host. Uh, we're sort of taking you initially on loan, and now it looks like a permanent transfer from uh, from Matchday 365, dual registry, all that good stuff. So you won't be leaving them, of course, but we did announce that you'd be joining the pod. And like I say, delighted to have you here, Liam. How you been? Thanks, man. I feel like the uh, Mamadou Sacco of Palace podcasts. Minus the, the expense, uh, of course. We're not paying you, despite the, yes. the quality you're putting out. This is f- purely like you know an exploitative relationship. I am going to do a. I'm going to do a little handshake with Bruno when I see him next, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was instrumental in bringing bring you on, and like I say, you've been a really start to have on in the past, and we're really glad to have you on board for the ride. So, yeah, jokes aside, just wanted to say again, a very big welcome and thank you for your impact. It was uh, quite funny looking at socials and, and seeing the reaction. I think some of it quite hostile, which is a good thing, really, because we want controversy here. We want real chat. So, you know, if that's a barometer, I think we're uh, we're pretty happy. Um, and what a week to bring you in, by the way, Liam. I mean, just before we even look at the cup in, in, in a bit of detail and, of course, the big burning sort of frustrations around the club, I mean, how are you feeling as a fan? Miserable, mate. Honestly, I know that's like, oh, what a start to sort of, you know, a podcast and to hosting a podcast. But I feel like I'd be disingenuous if I was coming on air and going, oh, you know, well, there's this, there's that. Oh, it's just, it's so depressing. Even the the sort of green shoots in, you know, someone like David Ozo, you think, oh, what a prospect he looks. And then you look at the reality of this season, you go, oh, does it really matter this year? And it, it's just, yeah, I'm sure we'll get into it in detail, but the, the sort of headline for Palace, for seemingly anybody that isn't, you know, seemingly called Steve Parrish is, God, this is depressing. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen all sorts of neutrals, Palace fans alike, just just chiming in on the situation. I think, you know, we'll talk in detail about the banners at Arsenal that really caught headlines. But I mean, there's just so much negativity that's really come to a head. I mean, I think personally, and I'm just speaking off the cuff and I'm speaking about myself here. You know, I think this is the most negative we've been as a fan base since being in the Premier League, genuinely. This is including, you know, when when Vieira couldn't get a strong target. This is including the lockdown season. We feel utterly hopeless or perhaps more aptly at a crossroads in a way that we've never been at before. Um, I think some of the warning signs have been there for years, but I think this is this has really come to a head now. Again, I think we wouldn't have, we want to part that thought because I really want to talk about that in, in, in proper detail. But again, we have to do justice, unfortunately, to another disappointing cup bell, which feels like, you know, something we say all the time under Roy Hodgson. But I mean, just going into the Everton game, I think, you know, it was a replay. We know that the football was pretty drab, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the initial fixture at Selhurst. I mean, Liam, how important for you was that game? What did it mean to the fans? And ultimately, did we, did we really kind of take a dump in our best hat? Well, I, I, funny enough, my boss is an Everton fan and we were chatting before the, the first, you know, the, the nil-nil and we basically both agreed that it would suit both clubs if we both just went out there and did rock, paper, scissors, such is the way that, you know, we were feeling about, about the game. Um, but I feel like the reality of it, for me personally anyway, only set in when I saw that as a substitution. Um because I understand, you know, we criticised him for, um, you know, running Elise into the ground a bit. And even though I think it's two wildly different situations, 3-1 up at Brentford versus chasing a game at Everton. Um, I feel like that's when it really set into me of, oh, yeah, this is our season over. You know, I said to my dad, at best, this is our season over now. At worst, we're going to be in a relegation battle. Um, and when you look at it that way, it's just like, well, 
is this is another season of this? And we all knew it. We all knew it when Roy was appointed. This is a filler season. And we basically told the whole Premier League when Roy was appointed, you know, we're going to coast this year. See if you can be good enough to make us sweat. And as it happens, you know, teams are plenty good enough to make us sweat. But going out of the cup was, you know, it was expected. And that's the most depressing thing about it is that we all saw, you know, all saw the performance, all saw the stats and the outcome and everything. And we all went, oh, yeah, that's just what we do. And then when you sit and think about that and think about why the acceptance of that is there, I feel like that's where the real problems lie. I mean, statistically, even at half time in that game, it was a game littered with zeros all over the statistical board. It was just an absolute horror fest in terms of, you know, entertainment value. It was so, so dreadful in terms of quality. But one moment of quality, probably the only one in the whole game, in fact, was was that Gomez free kick. I mean, again, I, I'm going to say it before, and I'll say it again as I do every episode. We're not a we're not a granular podcast. There is plenty of good coverage from top quality journalists and other sources out there. If you want detail game by game, I'm more interested in kind of the ideas behind games, the philosophies, the the things that get fans talking. I mean, the way we set up was pretty dreadful in the first place. It was negative. We have this game against high-flying-ish Arsenal that kind of, you know, is fundamentally good, but they need to pick up points. You know, we had nothing to lose by giving the fans something to hope for. And we just robbed, <laughs> we just robbed of it as a fan base. I mean, ugh, let's talk about that free kick. Go on. Let, let's get back on track. I mean, it was a moment of real quality, wasn't it, from Everton? But, I mean, defensively and, and looking at that wall, I mean, what went wrong there, Lou? Um, it feels too simple to, to put it down to this, but it really felt like it was just half-arsed. Everything about that night felt half-assed. The the performance, for the most part, the setting up of the wall, even the dive from Johnston. And I mean, I'm no goalkeeper expert, so I'm reluctant to criticise keepers unless it's a real howler. But I just watched everything to do with that, and I sort of thought, "Have we asked? You know, can have uh, they turned up there with the same mentality that we have, which is you know, as fans, which was sort of begrudging acceptance of a loss." Because half the wall didn't jump. You know, the, the free kick was avoidable in the first place from Lerma, who's you know, he's been one of our, our better players this season. And even then, he sort of just had a, a brain-dead moment. And I just, everything everything about that goal sort of seemed to sum up how we're feeling at the moment, which is it looked like the players couldn't be asked. You know, it felt like a, almost a calamity, you know, when you take everything into account. And I... I it was one of those ones you watched. You know, I'm sure we all, everyone that weren't at the uh, at the stadium, watched the same sort of grainy video that got on Twitter ten minutes afterwards. And I watched it, and I just thought, what What are we doing here? You watch the wall just stand there. You know, you watch Johnston's weird dive, and it just it felt like so indicative of where we're at at the moment because. It just felt so avoidable, like the majority of issues at the club at the moment. I mean, let's talk morale just briefly. I was just going to talk about the lack of flair. I mean, one controversial thing, obviously, was Mateus France, the winning man of the match and putting in a, a not, not, you know, not a world-class performance, but certainly one to be commended and one that looked like it mm. was full of kind of actual gusto and actually trying to make something happen. He was dropped. You know, Eze was taken off and got booed, which again, we'll talk about. But let's talk about morale, because I think I, I don't want to lose sight of that point. I think it's really important to talk about. And I think, you know, if you want to bring in Arsenal just temporarily, again, we're going to use the phrase on loan here, because I think it has to be that way. You know, do so, because I, I just want to know what you think morale in the dressing room must be like. 
we're hearing and, and what I what I understand is that the players are behind Hodgson and his methods. There is a kind of innermost respect for him within that squad. But I mean, to be losing this many games, to have only one Premier League win in 12, you know, to go out the cup in such a rollover fashion, it, it must be absolutely destructive for, you know, the, the general sense of morale within the squad. What do you make of that? Well, I, I was thinking about this the other day and I tried to equate it to my personal life, which, you know, is really difficult to do because they live such a, you know, a weird specific life as professional footballers that many of us will never be able to empathise with. Um, but I was trying to think about it. And if if I went out of, you know, went to the office every week and on Friday every week, I had someone pull me into, into an office and went, this is rubbish. Everything you've done the last week has been meaningless. Come back next week for 12 weeks or however long it's been. My Lord, would that be demoralising? You know, you think about, about you know the the leaders in that side, you know people like Anderson and Ward's injured at the moment, but obviously he's club captain. And how are you supposed to pick up a group of lads that are being you know seemingly by the way we set up? And I know we've set up a little bit differently recently, but you know the you know the identity is pretty much the same regardless of the formation on paper. How do they keep saying every week, you know, come on boys, this is right, you know, we got uh, we got trust in this, it's going to pull off because you know they must be watching the footage back and going, this doesn't look right. Because we, as you know, relative idiots, are looking at it going, this doesn't look right. So how can they maintain such belief if it, you know, outside of just pure respect for the person that Roy is? And I feel like the majority of Palace fans, you know, the ones that, are, you know, that aren't talking in, you know, the cold anger of fandom, you know, got a lot of respect for who Roy is as a bloke and would never claim to know more about him about football than him. But you can watch what we're doing on a weekly basis and go, this really clearly isn't working. Both the eye test and the results are saying this isn't working. So there's got to be at least, you know, some players in that dressing room that are thinking the same as we are. And morale must be really, like, if it's not low at the moment, like, we've got an unbreakable squad of players because how much worse can it get? You know, it, it feels, you know like you're poking the bear a bit asking that question but you know we've only beaten Brentford and Burnley in September I think it is uh, how can they sort of look at that and not question it you know it, it's it's the mind boggles as to how you know they seem to be so staunchly behind Roy now if you know say for example by the time we play Brighton we've got Elise and we've got Jordan Ayew back and suddenly we look more like the Palace that we saw back end of last season, then brilliant. You know, I'm not sitting here going, oh, I just want Roy Sack, just want Roy Sack, because it's not that at all. As, you know, the majority of Palace fans are exactly the same. We're not... I saw Chris Sutton say today that we're asking for the world or something ridiculous like that. And we're really not. All we're asking for is a bit of identity with the way we play and a bit of hope. And I appreciate Roy isn't brought in to bring us hope. So let's just look at on the pitch when it comes to Roy. And if we get our identity back when we get those couple of key players in, wonderful. But you just struggle to believe it. So how can the players believe it? No, I mean, a nice way to round back to the question, because, you know, if I'm the likes of Jakob Anderson, for instance, who, you know, only has a couple of years as of next summer remaining on his contract, you know, you must be trying to speak to your agent about, you know, potential suitors out there. You can't. You must have it in the back of your mind. As happy as you might have had, you know, in terms of the club, in terms of the times that you've spent there, you know, there must be a part of you that's thinking, why am I enduring this? Why am I not moving somewhere else? Why am I not thinking about that? There probably already are. You know, I think there's obviously a few assets that would probably be looking to move on and cash in on. 
but there must be within that not just a kind of sense of you know improving one's career but also a kind of need to get out of this what feels like a kind of pan full of oil on fire at the moment it feels like nothing's going right here we're already seeing symptoms of that i mean think about yark anderson in the last press conference there was a little thing on twitter that came out just from one very very small journalist just just managing to catch him for a brief moment where he, he actually called for more transfer investment from from the boards you know and we're seeing these little things particularly after the Arsenal game itself when he goes to the fans now I don't want to speak again I don't want to you know just look at that right now because I think we want to kind of keep it chronological and go back to Everton but you know I still have to have to question the integrity of some of these people it's brilliant you know it's brilliant that they have the mentality to be able to do that I think it's an example of professionalism because uh, they have massive patience of a saint We've both gone off on one a little bit there, but I want to I want to talk a bit about Matthias Ranser in more detail and, uh, and to a lesser degree of Berriese and the, the flashpoint in which he gets taken off. I mean, this is a squad where, you know, for all its woes, for all its gaps, we're blessed with flair players. That's undeniable from neutrals and fans. You know, the, it's such a core part of how we play. And I think if we would, if it's kind of re- rediscover any kind of identity as a club, we need to look to those sorts of players to give us that spark, to give us something to get us out of our seats as fans. But what do you make of the ultimate decision not to play Francis? Do you think Hodgson is, is genuinely stifling his development or do you think he's cautious somewhere in the middle? Because there has to be a real conversation here about underutilising some of our assets. In answer to one of your questions, is he stifling Francis' development? I think the, the answer is yes, because from what we've seen of him, he can at least contribute to games semi-regularly. You know, like you said, when he kept, when he started versus Everton at Sellhurst, at, at worst, he was fine. You know, and then when he's come off the bench, aside from a couple of really few performances away, was it away at Newcastle and at home to Spurs? He looked a little bit ropey. Yeah. Um, and, and there's going to be teething pains. Uh, sorry. There's going to be teething problems and growing pains when a young lad who's only ever played in his home country comes across. You know, we see it with almost every player. And if they don't have, you know, that sort of period of time where they need to adapt, then they usually come in and set the world on fire. And I feel like, for the most part, Palace fans weren't expecting that with Franca. So I feel like the the season's been hugely detrimental to Mateus Franca, and it almost feels it feels silly to compare them, but it almost feels like his season this season is akin to Raksaki's season, um, not going out on loan. Because, yes, Raksaki's picked up that key injury and, you know, who knows how much he would have been playing because he did well against Forrest. But we look at it and we go, OK, well, both these lads need minutes. Both these lads deserve to be playing regularly. And their development's going backwards or at the best staying still because of it. And his decision to not be playing France regularly slash, you know, here and there, it blows my mind. Because if there was a good player in front of him, you know, if this was this time last year, and Wilf or Jordan Ayew, who is performing very well, is in front of him and Francis starts two games all season and it's the Carabao Cup third round and FA Cup third round, then absolutely fine. I don't feel like any of us would be complaining. But there's there's a McDonald's happy meal in front of him. You know, there's there's Jeff Schlupp sat on, on the wing, you know, just sort of twiddling his thumbs, pulling his socks up, you know, doing little to nothing with the actual football. And it, it's that's the most frustrating thing. In the same way we look at Brighton and their model and how they've sort of overlapped us and overtaken us, sorry, in the short term with their sort of management of things. And you look at us and it makes it worse. It's exactly the same with Franca in the case of, okay, well, 
what's stopping us? Or, you know, what's the comparison? And the comparison's Jeff Schluck, because that's exactly where he's going to be playing. And he's absolutely woeful. So I don't understand I don't understand it at all. Even if even if Jeff Schluck was doing okay, which he's not, it wouldn't make sense. So the fact Schluck's being woeful and we're in this position, I just I can't wrap my head around it at all. I can only assume Hodgson is is trying in his mind to play someone who he sees as more well-rounded as a footballer than someone who perhaps has glimpses of talent and quality, but maybe not the well-roundedness to play in his kind of system. But I don't even go along with that kind of that narrative because France has never looked positionally awful. You know, he's not so ill-disciplined that he he constantly drags himself out of position and, you know, leaves big defensive gaps on the counter for teams. We've never had an issue where he has been directly at fault for you know, as some sort of woefully disastrous counterattack. He's not someone who mm. strikes me as someone who isn't at all suited for a Hodgson system. Hodgson himself admires his talent, so it's not a question of genuinely writing him off. I think there is some kind of genuine bias towards, you know, a, a, a type of player with a certain set of attributes that, that Francis simply doesn't have because he's this kind of, you know, exciting flair player, but maybe who isn't so well-versed in these so-called dark arts. It, it does strike me as, as bizarre, though, that we're not giving him the actual game time he needs to develop. You know, there was this talk, uh, some kind of rumour, it was a while ago, to be fair now. I, I think it's pretty much got nothing behind it, thank God. But there was a rumour that Frampton might be allowed to go on loan. And at the time, we were obviously disgusted. But, you know, in hindsight, this this is a kid that needs minutes. You know, we need him in our squad. He, he's a much he's much better used to us here than, than anywhere else. But... You know, if he doesn't get minutes regularly at some point this season, you have to really question the decision making of of the management team. You know, we've done our homework. We've played a significant amount of money on him to only then fail to get anything out of him and have any meaningful contribution to our season precisely at a time, I should add, where we're lacking a strong amount of offensive threat. I mean, it's baffling. Look, yeah. I've, we've laboured the point. I think there's plenty to be said there, but I do want to move on a bit um, to that as a flashpoint. I mean... This was, a, again, a, an example of the fan base, probably a bit of a warning sign for Arsenal as well, of that fan base turning sour again, as we've mentioned. You know, Eze comes off sort of around the 60-minute mark and is very audibly booed. Bearing in mind, we only took a very small number to, to Everton. And again, I think you deserve some kind of medal and, and cash grant if you did actually go to that. But nonetheless, that crowd was incredibly vocal in, in what it thought of the uh, the decision there. So I'll let you go, Liam. What, what did you make of the decision to get Eze off and the fans' reaction? And was it justified? Well... It's a difficult one because I, I, if you're looking at it completely pragmatically, I do understand the logic of it, as I think most people do. You know, he's come off a, a long-term injury. He didn't look himself in the last few games. You know, take him off, protect him, and go into the league where we are still in trouble. You know, in terms of the relegation battle. But sometimes things are more important than that. You know, that sometimes feeling overwhelms logic when it comes to sport, particularly football. And you think of those, what, 400, 300-odd people that made that trip from London to Liverpool on a freezing cold Wednesday night, you know, with the feeling around the club as it is, you know, they had absolutely every right to be absolutely furious, as does every Palace fan seeing that, because that was effectively waving the white flag, you know. He was having a fairly good game as well. You know, he was... the the. It was just, like I said previously, it was just a real sort of um, flag point in terms of like you can point at our issues this season and go, yeah, here's here's the problem. Um, but like I say, there, there is logic behind it. It's not like I, I saw that and went, why on earth is that going on? But I just feel like the pros of leaving him on the pitch would have outweighed the negatives, which was potential injury and, you know, keeping him on and him being more fatigued and it, you know, 
still losing. But we had Arsenal, you know, as much as you don't want to sound defeatist and go, oh, we were never going to win that. You know, we were, it was either another half an hour against a team that we can compare ourselves to, you know, that we, you know, we were performing not great, but, you know, we were in the game against versus 90 minutes against a team we knew we were going to sit back against that doesn't favour Eze's game. You know, the, the, the logic, you know, is a logical decision. And even then the logic kind of crumbles a bit once you put it under a bit of pressure. So it was a real, it, it feels difficult to sort of go, oh, that was an absolutely ridiculous thing to do. But in the context of our season, it was. You know, I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I just, like I said, because of what the what the cup means for us generally in terms of not having anything really to play for outside of worst case scenario of relegation battle, what that that substitution represented, it was just so defeatist. It, yeah, I feel like I'm I'm rambling, so I'll, I'll let you say <laughs> your piece on it because it was just ah, oh, it is so. Yeah, there, there isn't a right answer, which I feel, you know, was reflected in Roy's post-game statements. But what 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 did you think? Well, I mean, just to answer that last point before I before I give you my thoughts, I think, you know, Hodgson was quite graceful in how he addressed the fans after taking Eze yeah. off and, and had a lot of empathy. I have to admit, I mean, for all his failings in some of his media appearances this season, he has changed his tune a little bit. And I think he has a degree of empathy now because he knows by his own standards, results have not been good enough in performances. Whilst not as dreadful as people make them out to be, I, I still think, you know, they're not justifying in terms of ultimate points on the board. That's the bottom line. Mm. Um, but just my thoughts on that. I mean, I, I was going to actually discuss the idea of it as a symbolic booing rather than a, than a pragmatic booing. And I think you've covered that very nicely, so I won't labour the point. I was going to say it, was, it wasn't so much that it was the wrong decision pragmatically. It's more that I think it's symbolic of a negative mentality that has again kind of pervaded the way in which we're playing on the pitch and setting up tactically that is grinding fans into the ground and giving them very little to hope for this season. Um, but at another level, you know, I think it also was just, again, showing disrespect to the cup. It was this idea that we weren't really going to, you know, throw the kitchen sink at trying to prolong our season or, or prolong another strand to the narrative of this season that could have been more positive for the fans. It was kind of, a, again, another uh, another instance of rubbing salt into the wounds and really dragging the fan base down in terms of morale. So, you know, it, it was always going to be something that's unpopular. But again, I think there were at least somewhat some justifiable reasons for it. Um, but that being said, I, I think it was start to finish. It was a very uninspired performance with very little creative threat. And those that could have changed the game were left to stagnate again. Um, one big positive was, again, David Ozo, who continues in, in all sorts of games now to be seeing meaningful minutes. It feels like we always see him, albeit not starting, but nonetheless coming off the bench with increasingly more trust being given to him by Hodgson. He's getting sort of, you know, 20, 25, pushing 30 minutes on the regular under his belt and has never once looked uncomfortable. He's never looked is perhaps negative as some of the players on the pitch. I mean, we've spoken a bit about Franson and how we're concerned for his development, but I mean, if there's one player that seems to have captured both Hodgson's heart and his head, it's David Ozo. I mean, what do you think of his his recent performances? They're obviously not lighting up the league, but I, I still think there's something to be said there, Liam. I think any... I think he's 18 now, isn't he? Any 18-year-old lad that's able to play in the Premier League regularly and not look out of place... As you rightfully said, he doesn't look out of place at all. I feel like that deserves, you know, singling out from whichever fan base it is. You know, we don't need to sort of over-egg the point and go, oh my God, he's going to be the next Yaya Torre. But just watching a young lad come into our team, especially, like you say, at a time where there's so little to cheer about and see him come in and be a six or seven out of ten and just do all the right things. It's just, it, 
I, I can only feel pride watching him. And I feel like, you know, on a wider level, that's what you get from watching an academy prospect play in the first team. But he comes in, he's so calm. You know, if you knew nothing about him, then you just think he's some, you know, some lad that was brought in in the summer that we're trying to acclimatise the league, funny enough, similarly to Matthias Franzer. Um But he just looks so competent. That's how I'd describe him. The two words I'd say is strong and competent. And I just think if he keeps progressing the way he does, then we're going to have, a, at the very least, a, you know, really good squad Premier League player. And I think that, you know, that being the expectation is doing him a disservice. You know, I think he's got all the tools and I think the fact that Roy trusts him and like you say, sort of captured his heart and mind a bit, you know, I feel like that's a big as, as big a testament to him as you can give, you know, given Roy's past experience with young players and I guess current experience with young players, you know? Not that I know anything more than Roy Hodgson about football. Absolutely not. He, he, you know, I respect his experience, but you have to remember this is the man that that said Roberto Carlos would ever make it as a footballer. So I think, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying he gets it right all the time, but he he is a good judge of character as well for the most part. Aside from that, and uh, I think for him to to trust Ozo in the way he does is again, as you say, a real testament to his character and potential. What I like most about him is I think that although he's fundamentally robust, he plays with a kind of a strength and a maturity beyond his years. He does progress players sometimes. I mean, his stats aren't, aren't standout, but they're certainly better than comparable players in his position, notably Will Hughes, who, again, has a place in the squad, but I think hasn't really justified his place in the starting 11 recent performances beyond injury. Um, you know, it, it's a really interesting one. And we spoke a bit about symbolism. I think more so than France, I think David Ozo is a beacon in a, in a pretty terrific storm at the moment for a club that is struggling or feels like it has to work five times as hard as anyone else for a win. You know, it... It's not where we should be, but I think David Ozo, in terms of the way he's been able to come in with maturity, with you know a real desire to make an impact and an assuredness that not even in our wildest dreams that we thought we'd be expecting, is you know it's something that really has given fans a little bit of hope, and we can only hope that whoever comes in after Hodgson will repay that same faith and see the quality that he puts in day in day out on the training ground and and in matches and and give him more time and more faith because we could save ourselves a hell of a lot of money and a hell of a lot of. Of, uh, of future depth issues by giving him that trust. Um, I think he's come leaps and bounds and it's really good to see. Um, look, let's let's get on to the meat and drink here because we can talk about Arsenal all day and, and how much of a woeful performance it was, but we're not interested in that. I don't think fans are. We know we were dreadful. that We have the same kind of set piece issues, but you know, I, I do think we need to talk a little bit about the performance and the mentality. There was a lot being made about on Twitter about, you know, going with a back three that changed into a back five, um, depending on the nature of, of transition, attacking and so on. I mean, what did you make of the way in which you set up against Arsenal off the back of such a disappointing game against Everton? Uh, I saw it and I sort of went, yeah, of course we are. You know, because that's being a fan of a Roy Hodgson side in, you know, when it's not going well. I think there was, like with most things with Roy, there was logic behind it. And at times, you know, it wasn't horrendous, but for the most part it was. You know, you could see the thought process, but, you know, any plan we had just, it didn't cover the lack of quality in comparison to Arsenal. You know, if we went in there and played like that with Michael Elise and Sheikh Decore and Jordan Ayew, then perhaps it would have been a little bit stronger. But, you know, you look at our peers in this league and it's, unfortunately, it's, it's teams like Bournemouth and teams like Fulham. 
you know, those are, that's where we want to be, which is mental to say, seeing as they came up after us significantly so. But you look at the table and you go, okay, that's where we would like to be, just away from the relegation zone. That's the most we can hope for this season. Their managers sort of cover the, the quality deficit. You know, when things go well for them, it's okay. Marco Silva's coached a really good game or, or Iriola, I think that's how you pronounce that. As you know, he's really improved this player, that player, and you know, you can really see it on the on the premier on the on the pitch. And you just never see that with Palace, and I didn't see that on Sunday either. You know, there's logic behind setting up with a back three and a back five, and that definitely works better with Klein than it does with Wardy. Um but it just didn't work. And I think if you'd have told us at the start of the week, all right, we're going to go to the Emirates and we're going to play a back five and we're going to have a midfield pivot of Lerma and Hughes and a front three of Schlupp, um, Ateta and, and Eze. How do you think we're going to do? I feel like most fans would say, yeah, we're going to lose by at least three. And in reality, you know, I think most of those players probably would have said the same. Um, so, you know, I... Again, I could see the logic behind it, but it was just painfully predictable. What did you think when you heard we were going to be setting up with a back three, back five? You know, it's relatively different for a Roy Hodgson team. Were you excited? <laughs> I mean, excited is definitely not the word I'd use. But that being said, I mean, I was there at the Etihad and, you know, that was, again, a game that we absolutely were not fancied for. And I think it really worked, to be fair, in these kind of backs against the wall situations. I think, you know, depending on the way the team plays and the way they set up, it's always going to have that possibility to backfire. I think we just happened to put in some very good individual performances against City. And I think the system did partially help with that, particularly, as you say, for Nathaniel Klein, who I think had quite a few good games. You know, whether oh, I know we lost the game, but the defeat to Chelsea, he was he was fairly good. Um, yeah, outstanding. Yeah, definitely. He was outstanding at City. And again, against Arsenal, again, not his finest hour, but he wasn't exactly shabby. I think, you know, when he's given more freedom to run and progress play, I think he is a more natural fit for that wing back role than, than Joe Ward. And um, his, his, excelled with a little bit less defensive responsibility. I think it, it's kind of masked some of the weaknesses in his play. Um, we'll speak about the right back situation later, by the way, because we do have um, some news and analysis there. Um, I'm sure fans that have been following the rumor mill will know exactly what I'm talking about, but all in good time. And, you know, I wasn't excited, I wasn't enthused, but I understood the logic and it just happened to be one of those games where I think, you know, we tried the same kind of routine counter-attacking again and again. And other than Eze, we couldn't really connect anything. We got countered in kind of the same way. The same kind of exploitation was was a routine throughout that performance and it ultimately led to, to several goals. Um, you know, the set pieces, I mean, we could spend all day moaning about the same old issues with set pieces. We know what they are as fans. Um, and again, most of the situations from open play were entirely predictable and we simply didn't have the kind of acumen to, to remedy that by making changes within play, by shifting around personnel, by changing shape, you name it. We, nothing we tried if at all really addressed that. And it was a real problem that was visible on, on the cameras. Um, look, I, I think we could spend a lot more time talking about Arsenal, but I, again, I think I, I think we're more interested here at the angst around the club. We're more interested in the transfer window and what's going on there. And again, this sort of, this ultimate question that neutrals and, and Palace fans alike are raising, which is a bit of soul searching. So Liam, let's slow down. Let's do some soul searching. Come on, this is a meditation session. <laughs> this is therapy. I don't know if I'd ever be a good therapist, but I think if you ever, you know, are sat there on the kind of futon and I'm sat there in the armchair with my glasses on and a cigar, I think you're in real trouble. Um, but it's come to that. So yes, I, I'm 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 your therapist for today, Liam. Just just vent. Let's just do some soul searching. Let's talk about where we are as a club. You know, let's start with neutrals as well because there's been so much in the press that's just sort of 
basically people who don't understand the club, frankly, who don't understand us as fans are kind of questioning, perhaps with some justification because they're not, you know, familiar, but they are questioning, look, why are we moaning? You know, we haven't spent a lot. We've not got a particularly strong squad. We haven't got a particularly exciting manager. You know, we we don't look like, I would maybe contest this, but we don't look like, you know, we're one of the three worst teams in the league. We're not amazing, but we're not down, down, down. And, you know, they're questioning, well, what more do you want as fans? You know, you're stable. So ultimately, if I'm a pundit, if I'm a neutral looking in and I can't understand why Palace fans are unhappy, just enlighten me. Okay, so on a on a match day level, on sort of a week by week basis, we are watching consistently the worst brand of football in the league, uh, which is also a brand of football that we were suffering through. Uh, the season before the COVID season and then this COVID season as well. So we've had three seasons now of just absolutely turgid football with no plan to go forwards, uh, conceding possession and sort of a, a will to take the ball by the horns every week. Um, there's no sort of uh, consistent opportunities for young players, um, particularly in starting roles. Uh, there seems to be no hope we, on a week-by-week week basis, we go into games going, ah, we'll probably lose, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, at the very least, in the stands, that feels like it's the case. Um, and then on a sort of wider level, at a club level, it's almost exactly the same in the sense that it feels like there's no plan. feels like nothing's put together. Um, you know, it's not like Palace fans are sitting here going, well, we need to... We didn't replace Wilf in the summer. We needed to spend £60 million and replace him with Pedro Neto. No, that's not the case at all, it. Any any pundit or uh, sort of don't want to don't want to use a name as an example, but you know bootlicker on Twitter um, saying that we do want to spend silly money is either misleading in what they're saying or uneducated. All we want is a purpose and a direction, and that direction, uh, you know, that first season under Vieira looked like it was going to be, we're going to play this style of football, we're going to win some games, we're going to lose some games, but we're going to give it a bloody good go and off the pitch, we're going to buy young upcoming players, improve them and deal with the sort of the, as we said for France, the the growing pains that comes with having a young squad. And that season, and I think you'd agree, is probably the most fun we've had in the past decade or so by by a fair distance. Um and we've just never come close to that since, you know. And a lot of that is down to the fact that we don't know what's going on at a boardroom level because every article that seems to come out about our owners seems to be painting it as their mortal enemies. You know, John Texter's got 40-odd percent shares in Palace and he doesn't get on with our chairman who's got the decisive decision-making position at board level. So all we want really, and I, I, I appreciate I'm sort of, you know, trying to speak for... 25,000 people on a on a Saturday afternoon but I think all we really want is a bit of direction and something to enjoy on a Saturday afternoon as simple as that sounds you're totally right Liam look I've used the phrase before um I won't name who but a journalist uh, actually reached out to Bruno um himself just to give him a text and just say I love that phrase um so that's a shameless bit of self-aggrandizing on my part. But yeah, I, I'll use it again. We have been turned on and left as a fan base. You know, like you say, that season under Vieira gave us hope again. We had a manager who, all right, well, maybe wasn't our first choice manager, but we got behind him. We backed him reasonably in the market. He had played a brand of football that got fans optimistic and gave them genuine hope. But one that, unlike Frank de Boer, A, suited the squad we had, and B, was led by a manager who was much better with people and could genuinely motivate and excite players. And, and 
we had some of the best memories we've ever had in the Premier League under Vieira in that first season. We were playing expansive football. You know, we won games by significant margins on occasion. And of course, that FA Cup run was unlike anything we've had since Pardew. It was just, it was something that we're not used to. It was almost this alien sensation where it felt like, you know, we weren't expecting to finish more than about 11th, but there was always this ceiling that we could hit. There was always, when you had a manager of that brand of football, that philosophy, those players playing under him, there was always levels and levels and levels you could hit in a way that when you have someone like Hodgson in, in a filler season, you never will be able to because it's never intentioned. It's never part of the plan. There's never that potential there because there's no project to work towards. We've lost that project. We've kind of just started it and left it on standstill or like a kind of, oh, I don't know, like a half-constructed main stand that could never happen, you know? It's like, <laughs> there's so many things that are going on. I, that will happen, to be fair. I think it, a lot longer than people would have liked, but, you know, I, I have said it equally on the pod, it's better to start that and 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 get it right rather than do what Everton have done where you sort of half-start something and then realise the costs are spiralling and, you know, there's unforeseen issues. So that is one thing I will say, but complete aside, look, there is a project, there is something going on in the background, but we've completely turned it into a standstill and we've just left it half done. And that is always going to create frustration. I mean, where do we go from here? I mean, any it's anyone's guess. It really depends on the here and now. We're recording for context, by the way, on the, uh, the Monday evening. So just after the Arsenal game by a couple of days, but things are moving quickly. We understand behind the scenes. And, you know, we've heard from... I think the Price of Football podcast, which is a great podcast, I won't I won't apologise for shouting them out. Um, you know, there was a hint on there that um, with John Taxter, I think it's moving behind the scenes that there may be some news as, as early as this week. So by the time listeners are hearing this, there may have been some developments as well. Um, but again, I think we want to talk about ballroom politics because you touched on it quite nicely there. You know, there are all these rumours of, of John Taxter being alienated, feeling like he doesn't really have much sway over the club. I mean, do you trust his intentions and trust his strategy? I mean, just for context, look at what's going on with Botafogo and process there as well as as well as well Leon. Uh, the short answer is no. Uh, I don't trust him as far as I can throw him, to be honest. And I think a lot of the time uh, fans see John Texter as the sort of saviour of where we are at the moment because they're unhappy with Parrish's decision-making. And I think there's a happy medium somewhere that we seem to be missing where you can be annoyed at pa- Parrish's decision-making and sort of say perhaps he's he's gone as far as he can without going, oh, yeah, but he should be listening to this guy who, you know, his, his general sort of, what's it called, eagle, eagle football holdings, that, in, that entire yeah. project seems to be at best up and down. Um, and I know that, Recently, there's been protests against him at uh, Botafogo. Um, he's not popular at, at Lyon. Um, the only place he seems to be sort of an overwhelming success is Molenbeek. Um, and I, it's, it's difficult because on the one hand, you can't sort of go, well, look at this. This is why I don't trust him. But the fact that he... he hasn't been a obviously he's been a far more successful man than me so I don't mean this in a you know personally disrespectful way but in comparison to you know what he could have been he hasn't been a massive success in a lot of things um the the stream of money is concerning at best um the plan to sort of float our shares on this on the stock exchange is worrying uh, I've got no real understanding of how that works aside from talking to a friend of mine who understands it better than me and he basically said that's what businesses do when they have no money um 
but I've, I, you could correct me there because I have no idea if that's correct or not. I'm taking my mate's word for it. Um, but just things like that, everything he does just seems to be a bit iffy. Um, and it is concerning. And I wouldn't want him to have any more power than he currently does. But on the flip side, I can totally understand him being extremely frustrated when he's put however much money he has into this into this project and he doesn't have any real decision-making, you know, on the day we're recording this, like you say. Um, Ed Aaron's put an article out on Twitter for The Guardian that said that he didn't want to hire Roy back. You know, he was involved in uh, the Matthias Prancer transfer, which I think was common knowledge anyway. But the, the thing about not wanting to appoint Roy wasn't. And it's such a big decision like that being taken pretty much entirely out of his hands when he's the one fronting up a lot of the money. You know, as much as I can say I don't really want him here, I totally understand why he wouldn't want to be here anymore. You know, it's it feels like his project doesn't align with our project, and subsequently, neither of us should have got involved with each other in the first place. No, totally. We took him on at a time where we needed to source a little bit of capital for infrastructure as well as to refund. Sorry, to lots of refunds to fund a rebuild of the squad. That was always going to require fresh capital. Um, speaking of capital, just to go back to your point on finances as well, the way I understand it with uh, with floating on the stock exchanges, it's essentially a, a mechanism. That's all. It's it's a mechanism for raising funds, just as you know Barcelona have sold future TV rights with a view to raising funds. Now, those are completely different situations. I don't want people to worry because I've mentioned Barcelona and everyone knows their difficulties very well, you know, in the same breath. But you know, what this basically shows is maybe not that he's bankrupt. I wouldn't go anything. You know, I would never say anything crazy like that. I don't think John Taxter is lacking in funds. I think all that it's really showing is I think Taxter wants to ease some of the personal burden in terms of where that funding is coming from. And I think some of his ambitions go beyond the scope of what he's willing to spend at this time. That's all. Um, I'm also not an expert, and I'd like to just clarify for listeners, I have no insider knowledge. I have no financial backgrounds. And that's purely just from my own, my own research, my own understanding of the issue. But it's nonetheless interesting that he will put EU holdings as you know on a public exchange. It's something really, really interesting. And I think it's one to keep an eye on. Um, I want to talk about, again, just a bit about Balkan politics. I think you've done it quite well there in terms of Saxer and his decision making. But I think, interestingly, what, one thing we're starting to see now is uh, Harris and Blitzer making more public appearances at Selhurst. And they're mm. seemingly quite aligned with Parrish and what he wants. And I think, you know, they've always kind of deferred to him um, as the sort of day-to-day steward and decision maker at the club. Hence why I think both in their votes and their sometimes in their money, they're willing to back him and his his sort of more cautious vision for, for Palace's future. I mean, what do you think of their kind of, I wouldn't say involvement because they've not been too directly in terms of their involvement, but they're certainly more present. I mean, what do you make of that? Um. I think it's an interesting point that they seem to be permanently aligned with Parish. And you look sort of, you know, we're never going to be in a boardroom with them, so we can only go off what we see publicly, you know. Um, they'll, they'll be sort of pictured together at meals, you know, less so nowadays, but particularly when they first got involved with Palace. You know, Parish will fly out and watch the Philadelphia 76ers and sit courtside. And, you know, that relationship seems to be fairly strong on a business level and a personal level. Um, and that just never seemed to be the case with Texter and Parrish at all. Um, you know, there were some quotes because when John Texter's name first seriously became linked with Palace, you know, uh, plenty of fans, myself included, would DM and sort of say, you know, what are your intentions, blah, blah, blah. And he seemed to speak, you know, positively, of pa- oh, sorry, he seemed to speak positively of Parrish at that point. Um, but then he was always going to, wasn't he? So you can't look too far into that. I just feel like, 
for whatever reason, the relationship's always been stronger with Harris and Blitzer for Parish, and subsequently, you know, they trust him. And like you say, their vote seems to be with him, and I think they probably look at it as outsiders from football, and they probably don't care about football as much as Texter does for all his all his sort of, you know, criticisms. They just don't, you know, they're not as in, involved personally. And subsequently, they'll see, oh, OK, well, you know, this on paper looks exactly the same as the last six seasons where we're 15th now and then we'll end up 12th and the money all stays the same and everything stays the same. So we're doing a good job. And Steve's telling us we're doing us a good job um, when we know that's not the reality. Um, so I think it's partly a case of, you know, they've just grown closer over the course of a working relationship but also I think Texas ambitions probably outweighs all three of Parrish, Harris and Blitzer and that's where the the conflict comes from the, the question with Texas is just you know can he match those ambitions well speaking of conflict one thing that we, we should draw attention to you mentioned that Texas and Parrish are rarely seen together but one exception to that was, the, ironically, the Arsenal game. Um, they were yeah. together in the stands. They weren't sat directly next to each other, although that's not exactly unusual. Um, Parrish, as always, was sat uh, immediately with Mark Bright, who is not just the loans manager, but also his kind of principal advisor, very much his right-hand man. But it was still not interesting to see them being, you know, somewhat jovial with one another, being quite familiar, being, um, you know, reasonably pro- friendly as, as far as you can in a professional way. They were all there. They're all in attendance, obviously not, not Harris Blitz of the Texter and, and Parish I'm referring to. Um, you know, that was something. And what an occasion for them to be together when I think the Homestead Fanatics took everyone by surprise. Um, you know, initially they had a banner right before the game that was kind of a, a slight jive at the Ashburton army who, you know, I, I was thinking about this, right, just as an aside. Like, I know people were taking the mech out of them. I like that at least another club's trying. Shoot me for that. I don't think it's the best, you know, attempt in the world for a team of, of Arsenal size, but at least someone's trying and north of the river to get some atmosphere going and get an ultras contingent. Um, but that that aside, right, let's, let's talk about the real issue here. You know, we were pretty annoyed as, a, as fans when we saw them taking a dig at that, assuming that they neglected the real issues of the club, only to then, you know, take the rug from under us, myself included, by unfurling a particularly damning banner. Um, at the t- start of this pod, we say mention it in detail, but for those that missed it, um, first of all, you're living under a rock, please change that. But secondly, um, the banner famously read, wasted potential on and off the pitch, weak decisions taking us backwards. I mean, it's a damning statement from the HF, isn't it? What did you make of it, Liam? I was shocked that they, don't get me wrong, they didn't mention him by name, but that is by far the most critical the Homestead fanatics have been of Steve Parrish throughout his entire sort of reign as Crystal Palace chairman. Um, you know, it's it's almost sort of infamous, the relationship that Paris, Parrish and the HF have, um, you know, because they seemingly sort of scratch each other's backs a little bit, sort of have, both have an easy life. Um, and that is by far the most they've criticised him. Um, and I think a lot of us on on Twitter, you know, saw it and thought, bloody hell, you know, this is serious. You know, this is where we are as a as a club now that, you know, even the sort of strongest allies are now looking at each other and going, I don't know if you're right here. Um, and I'm, I'll be honest, I'm amazed that that hasn't scared Parish into action, you know, in terms of if Roy was ever going to be uh, asked to leave or, or sacked, it would have been after the HF basically demanded of Parish. Um, and I, don't get me wrong, I appreciate that wasn't what was said word for word, but sort of inferring about decision making. You know, 
you know, bringing Roy back for this year was a weak decision, you know, and whose decision was that? Ultimately, it was Steve Parrish's. No, completely. Like you say, it was a phenomenally damning statement. And, you know, it, like it or not, I think for something that was not directly naming Parrish, I think it couldn't feel more direct in terms of what was being said. Um, Agreed. No, no, I mean, I just want to talk a bit about decision-making. I mean, I'm not going to pay these rumours any here because they were just rumours, but it was incredibly funny to see one tweet about a, a cabbie gyro potentially picking up Mark Bright from the Berlin in London and, and discussing that he'd been in a meeting with, with Graham Potter. Um, we're not taking that as truth. We would never suggest that. Um, I want to stress that this is very idle speculation, but there is a serious point to be had in terms of, you know, is the club actually making preparations? We don't know that for sure, but I mean, Potter and... Obviously, Steve Cooper are two names that have been heavily linked with the job. I mean, would you say that after the Arsenal performance, the board is now potentially considering that move and putting that trigger, despite its insistent reluctance that Hudson will see out the season implicitly? I think, I'll be honest, I think the actual Arsenal result means nothing in in regards to their decision-making. I think it's the banner and the mood now is sort of put their, put our sort of foots on their neck a bit. Um, and I think that this game coming up against Sheffield United, I think if we win it, this all goes away, you know, assuming we don't get battered by Brighton, actually. Do you know what? I've completely forgot Brighton's afterwards. The next two games are critical. We need realistically four points to get sort of, you know, to get a bit of breathing room, both from the, the bottom three and also, you know, within the fan base and, if we don't, if we lose to Sheffield United at home, I think he's gone before we get to Brighton and we've got Paddy McCarthy in the dugout. And if we get a, you know, get a narrow win against Sheffield United and get battered at Brighton, I think that's what sort of triggers it. You know, I think either way, we're on a real crash course heading towards the Amex. And this is really where Parrish is going to have to earn his money, both in the transfer market and, you know, holding his nerve you know whether that be sticking with Roy or, or moving on no totally I mean there's a very much a stick or twist moment here for the club and it's never felt more on a knife edge in terms of whether Hodgson will survive the season or not and I think as you say I think the board's innermost reluctance and internal planning suggests that Roy Hodgson will stay we haven't heard anything to suggest that he's gone yet and as of today on Monday um, you know that's not the case now by the time you're listening to this we could have our pants pulled down it may have happened who knows but um, I certainly think there'll be a few hot collars under the, the uh, on the necks of those at the club at the moment. So it's something to really pay attention to. Um, just before we wrap up, Liam, um, I want to just close a bit about the window, as you mentioned, because it's gone fairly quiet. It looks like the club sort of covered to move Calvin Phillips, that, you know, there was some interest from the club. There. That looks like it's not happening. Um, again, as of Monday, it looks like he's off to West Ham. Could change. Um, but one link that won't go away is Daniel Munoz. Um, we actually wrote an article on the Palace Way, which, you know, cheeky plug, if you're not already reading our articles and content, you can do so at thepalaceway.com, nice and simple. Um, but we wrote an article looking at Daniel Munoz, the, the heavily linked Colombian right back from, uh, from Gank in Belgium, and what he could bring to the club. Um, supposedly, we're haggling over the uh, reported 10 million fee, although it looks like some sort of compromise could be reached. Um, just looking at his stats here, you know, he averages uh 70, he's got sorry, he's not apologies, not averaging per game. He's got 75 tackles this season uh compared to 41 for Joe Ward and, and 19 for, for Klein. These are from limited minutes, and of course, these are different leagues, but in terms of shot creating actions per 90, he has almost three and a half per 90 this season compared to just under one for Ward and, and just uh just under like one per two games for Klein. So 
you know, he's incredibly attacking. He's a very, very um, possession-orientated fullback. Again, we wrote a whole article looking at him. So if you want to do that in more detail, please read our essentially palace piece at palaceway.com. And um, we need a right back, and it looks like we might finally be getting one if, if we really push hard enough. I mean, is that something? Do you think that deal will get over the line, Liam? Uh, I'm reluctant to say yes, purely because his name isn't Nathaniel Klein, Joel Ward, or Aaron Wambasaka. But I think necessity's finally kicked in, and potentially Ward's injury is a little bit worse than we expected. And yeah, the the short answer is yeah. I think I probably expect this to be done, and it may lead us to sort of change shape a bit to what we saw in preseason, which was more of an elbow um, defense. You know, in preseason we had Mitchell bombing down the wing and Wardy sort of inverting as a left sided, uh, sorry, as a right sided centre back, and maybe it's the other way round with Mitchell tucking in if if Munoz is particularly attacking, but. Um, yeah, I expect this to get done and he would definitely fit the right wing back role that we saw Nathaniel Klein play at the Emirates. For those that don't know, he's uh, he's technically got 12 months left on his deal, um, but in de facto terms, two years really, because he has a, an option to extend but held by the club. So, you know, I think in terms of both Gags need to sell and I need to buy, in terms of filling that obvious gap in the squad, I think, you know, there's a deal to be done there. He's only 27, which is still, you know, a good five years off our, our youngest right back. Um, so even in that sense, I think he boasts both a maturity and a, a still nonetheless potential to step up that would suit the strategic needs of the squad. It's a really interesting one. As you say, I think when push comes to shove towards the end of the window, I think it's deals like this that I think have some legs and would be able to be moved on. Um, it's really just a case of seeing where we go. But I mean, we have to hope as fans just again to give us these little glimmers of hope beyond, you know, youngsters being better than the team that we can get some meaningful business over the line. Um, I'll wrap it up there, Liam. It's been brilliant having you on. It, it feels really cathartic today. You know, I feel like we've both just kind of just gone very off the cuff. We've kind of strayed from all our notes. We just want to talk a bit about, you know, the state of the club, how dire it feels, these little glimmers of hope being snatched away cruelly from us as fans. It's been genuinely therapeutic just speaking to you tonight and, and really understanding that where you stand as a fan, where we are as a club and, and what neutrals need to learn about where we are in terms of the mood around the uh, the, the proverbial camp at the moment. Um, again, Liam, really good to have you on. Uh, for those that aren't following us, uh, you can do so at thepalaceway.com on Twitter. That's at thepalaceway.com, exactly as you'd expect it. Again, thepalaceway.com as well, if you're really into, into written content. You know, we're putting all sorts on that site, not just outstanding articles from an ever-growing team of writers, but also uh, you can play Joel Wardle, a little game up there. Um, you can keep an eye on our social feeds through there, get your links to the podcast before anyone else and so on. There's so much more to enjoy over there, guys. Um, but again, it's a big thank you for me for listening. If you can do so, please leave a review. One star, five star. We prefer five, but whatever you want, it's absolutely fine. We just want your feedback. Um, it's starting to pick up pace in terms of those that are leaving reviews and want to have their say on how we can improve the pod. So again, it's all really, really good stuff for us. And we're always grateful for you as listeners for that. And um, I'll leave it there. Again, you've heard where to follow us and catch everything everything palace with us. Um, Liam, anything to close on from you? Now, man, good to chat again. Uh, like I say, very, very cathartic. Um, I made a conscious effort not to tweet too much after Saturday um, just because I knew we were doing this and wanted to keep it all bottled up so it would sort of gush out like this because I think it's probably the most authentic way to do it at, you know, at a period of time like this with the club. So, yeah, good to chat and, uh, yeah, look forward to uh, same time next time. Yeah, it definitely feels like we've got a lot of our chest. And I hope for you as a listener as well that you guys really feel 
that you've kind of engaged with this <laughs> it feels like pub chat it genuinely does but the best kind you know yeah. it, it feels like you really sort of you address something that's all we want you know both emotionally as fans but also pragmatically in terms of where we go as a club we just want these glaring issues to be addressed before it becomes too late we're at a crossroads and where we go next is anyone's guess but what you can be sure on is we will be back next week with another episode and hopefully with you again liam obviously joining us as a permanent host so it'd be really good to chat more and and hopefully we can have more positive things to talk about after the next few games yeah look forward to it man now take care everyone thank you for listening cheers and bye-bye